morning, Mountain Park. My name is Alan, and uh, I'm thrilled to be able to continue our whole shebang journey. And our pacing is a little bit different this morning, uh, partially because we are looking at the Reformation of the 16th century. And uh, this was a uh, time of incredible transformation for the church, an incredible part of church history. And uh, the first song that we sang, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, was written 500 uh, plus years ago as a part of the, uh, as a part of the Reformation story. So that's what we're going to jump into this morning. I want to ask you as we begin, uh, have you ever entered into a scenario, a store, a party, a, a meeting or something and thought, who's in charge here? That, that there's some kind of uh, disorganization or uncertainty as to what's happening or maybe there's, a, maybe there's a, the, the, the plan or the order is not clear and your thought is, Who's in charge? Or maybe you're dropping your kids off at some event and there's just mayhem. And you're thinking, who's leading this? Who's in charge here? Or perhaps that question goes to a much grander place when you look globally at what's happening in the world around us and just wonder, okay, who's in charge here? That the global economy continues to be struggling. Why can't, why can't this get stabilized here? It's been going on for a number of years now. Uh, there is um, uh, increased unemployment in our country. There's continuing unrest in, in North Korea. I mean, I mean, decades of unrest there. Centuries of, of unrest in the Middle East. Who, who's, who's in charge here? Kind of stepping back and looking at this whole thing. And even, even aliens understand that that's the important question. We all know the first thing that aliens are going to say when they land here. We've seen all the movies. What's the first thing they're going to say? Take me to your leader. Who's in charge? I want to know what's going on. Who's in charge here? This morning, uh, as I said, we are continuing our uh, look at 2,000 years of church history. And I know a number of you, when your feet hit the floor this morning, you're going... Yes! More church history! I get that. I get that. I, I sense the excitement in the room. That as we continue through the whole shebang, it's what we're called, this 2010, we're looking at the whole grand story of God, the, the, the entire story, that it is imperative for us in terms of understanding who we are and where we are in this whole shebang journey, for us to know how we got here and to just skip over from the New Testament to where we are today misses out on an incredible part of the journey. So we are just taking a very quick look at church history. And, and this morning, we're looking at the, the Reformation of the 16th century, the most significant moment in the history of the church since the New Testament story. This was a moment where it started with Martin Luther, but, but persons, numerous persons said, we are going to challenge authority. We're going to question authority and say, okay, who's really in charge here? Out of a love for the church and a love for the God who, who set the church up, a number of people said, we want to relook at this whole thing. Who's really in charge? So as we look at this morning, as we look at church history and how that question was so important, we're then also going to say, what about, what about my life? What about my journey, my days? Who's really in charge? Would you pray with me as we launch into this? Father, I, I ask um, for you to 
speak here this morning. I humbly ask that you would come as the one who is in charge, as the one who has all authority. Would you come into this place and speak to our hearts? Would you filter out anything that is not of you? That all that happens here in this room right now would reflect your character and your truth. Come in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. There are more books written about Martin Luther than any other person other than Jesus Christ. Martin Luther, this guy who is referred to as a reluctant revolutionary. He did not want to start what he started. He did not intend to start the Reformation. Absolutely not. He is this reluctant guy. He is a a, a theology professor. And he stumbled into this one step and then another step and then another step. He did not want to divide the church. He did not want to destroy the church. He loved the church. He was a theology professor in Germany, and the story goes is that he was challenging one of his students with regard to morality, and this young lady said to him, you're not in charge of me. You can't tell me what to do. And he was trying to stand on the truths according to Scripture with regard to how she was living her life, and she said, I have this piece of paper, this indulgence signed by the authority of the church saying that I'm okay. See, what was happening is that the church was accepting money, particularly from the poor, and then signing pieces of paper for the remission of sins, saying, saying because of your sacrifice, your sins are forgiven. And that, along with many other conversations and thoughts that Martin Luther had at the time, he just decided, okay, this is enough. Enough is enough. And he sat down and he wrote out 95 questions. 95 issues that were to be talked about within the church. These have become known from history as the 95 Theses. And he took them and he posted them on the door of a church in Wittenberg. Again, not to divide the church, but to say, we need to have a call for discussion. We need to talk about this because our church is not healthy right now. He's an amazing, bold man who said, oh, we want to start a discussion that the church is not supposed to be this big structural hierarchy of, of who has authority over, over these kinds of things. The church is to be a community of believers. That we are to be the priesthood of all believers, not just those uh, certain ones who have all the authority. And it was a, it was a tremendous challenge to the way of life in the the 16th century. As a result of his his stirring, all of Europe, uh, as a result of his writings and his lectures, all of Europe uh, became stirred up by this whole thing, and eventually he was called to what was called the Diet of Worms. It's not like an eating thing. It was a gathering deal where he was he was told to come and recant what he had said, recant the things, the challenges that he had made to the authority of the church. Come, you are to come and gather with all these people and recant what you have said, or you will be excommunicated. There's a movie called Luther. Perhaps some of you have seen it, and this is kind of the uh, a significant moment in the story where he is called to recant. And I want to show just a real short clip from that moment. From that, it's movie. a good movie. Um, uh, the first half up until this point, uh, point, I think it's tremendous. It starts to kind of slip a little bit, in my humble opinion, uh, at that point. But it really is. It really is a good movie. It's a great capturing of, the, of this story. 
that Martin Luther is saying, let's remember who's in charge. And one of the, the, the tenets of the Reformation is that it is Christ alone who, who, who has the authority. Christ alone, Scripture alone. It is not the Pope's, it is not the councils, it is not the priests, it's not the pastor. It is Christ alone who carries the authority, who has the authority. Christ alone is in charge. The king of England at this time was Henry VIII. And Henry VIII, uh, he condemned the writings and the lectures of Martin Luther. And he was celebrated by the Pope. In fact, he was referred to as a defender of the faith. The Pope got that from a Judas Priest album at the time that was popular. <laughs> and so the Pope was celebrating Henry VIII. But Henry had a problem. He was married to Catherine. He loved Catherine. But Catherine was not providing him with a son. They had a daughter together. But he was the king and he needed an heir. So what he decided is to secretly divorce Catherine and marry Anne Boleyn so that they could have a son and his lineage could continue. The ironic thing is that he and Anne Boleyn didn't have a son either. They had daughter and then the future of their daughters is just a whole great part of English history. But what happened there is that he decided to, to go against all the rules and do what he wanted to do and the Pope found out about it and the Pope said, who do you think you are? You're not in charge. You can't do that. And so the Pope excommunicated the king. And so the king said, who do you think you are? You're not in charge. I'm the king. Henry VIII I am. I am Henry VIII I am. <laughs> and then a tremendously fascinating thing happened there in England. The king decided to break off. He saw what was happening in Europe and there were this this developments of, of Luther and Calvin and all these kind of these new thoughts within the church. And he said, well, I'll just start my own church. I'm way up here, up north. I'll start my own church, and we'll call it the Church of England. And that's how the church started. The Church of England didn't start as a movement of God. It started because the king wanted to set rules according to the life that he wanted to live. Isn't that fascinating? It was this wrestling of who's in charge. The question of who's in charge is such a significant shaper of history. There's a story in the New Testament that I want to take a look at where it, it, a clash of power happens. And there's a significant learning that we can draw from this. I'm going to, this morning I'm going to take a look at John, the book of John, chapter 18. This will be a story that will be uh, rather familiar to most of us. It's typically a story that we talk about around Easter. It's the story of the Jews identifying a heretic named Jesus and wanting to have the Roman authorities take care of this heretic. John chapter 18, beginning in verse 28. Then the Jews led Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. By now it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, 
the Jews did not enter the palace. They wanted to be able to eat the Passover. Now this here, this Roman governor was Pilate. We're probably more familiar with this story as, as the Jews bringing Jesus to Pilate as part of our Easter story. Now what is uh, happening here is this tremendous clash of power with regard to who is in charge. You see, the Jews and Pilate hated each other. They hated one another. The Jews hated Pilate, and this was all a big power struggle. The Jews hated Pilate because he actually was in charge. He was given charge over this area by Caesar. And a Pilate would take taxes from the synagogue, from the Jews, and he would kind of shave off a little extra for himself, and he would kind of kind of uh, take taxes according to what he wanted to do. And he would go into the synagogues and at times just kind of for fun or perhaps to balance things out, he would put symbols of pagan gods within the Jewish temples. The Jews hated what Pilate was doing. Hated the fact that Pilate was in charge of their city, Jerusalem. It was their city and Pilate was in charge. And Pilate hated the Jews because The Jews thought they were in charge. Pilate's job was to give taxes to Caesar, a certain amount of taxes, anything extra he could keep for himself and that whole kind of deal. Give taxes to Caesar and keep the peace in the region that he was responsible for. But the Jews, uh, case in point right here, liked to stir things up. And it made it difficult for Pilate to do his job. Pilate hated the Jews. So there's this tremendous power struggle between these two groups. And here in this story, if you remember, this happens, this is the Good Friday story. It happens late at night, early in the morning. And so the Jews hate the fact that they can't execute Jesus. They don't have, they don't have the authority to do that. They hate the fact that they have to go to this Pilate guy. But they traipse him all the way to Pilate's house. Take him to his house in the middle of the night. And ring the doorbell, ding dong, ding ding ding, whatever, right in the middle of the night. And Pilate hates the fact that these Jews are bothering him and waking him up in the middle of the night. But he says, okay, bring him on in, bring him on in. And as we saw in the verse I just read, the Jews say, we're not going into your house because we're preparing for the Passover and you and your house are unclean. <laughs> Can't go in there. And so now, Pilate's been woken up in the middle of the night, has to put his robe on, go downstairs to the door in order to meet with them. It's just this tremendous power struggle. I don't like you. I don't like you. I don't like you. Let me continue to read. So Pilate came out to them and asked, What charges are you bringing against this man? If he were not a criminal, they replied, We would not have handed him over to you. Perhaps a little bit of sarcasm there. Pilate said, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. But we have no right to execute anyone, the Jews objected. In other words, we're not in charge. We can't do what we want to do. We're frustrated. That's why we're here talking to you. There is a tremendous power struggle that is happening here. And what happens is uh, Pilate then says, okay, bring him into me. I want to talk with him. And so here we have the ultimate in power bashes that we see in our, new, in our uh, Easter story as Pilate and Jesus come face to face, kind of a clash of the titans, if you will. Both with great power coming 
and meeting one another. See, Pilate is caught between a, a rock and a hard place because on the one sense, as a representative of Caesar, he can't let this man just, just go and claim to be God. On the other hand, he does not want to give the Jews what they're asking for. So he is, he's caught in this moment. And Jesus comes before him, and this story, as outlined in, in Matthew's gospel, Matthew's version of the story, says that Jesus walks in, and through the accusations, and well, they say this about you, Jesus, they say this about you, Jesus, and he made no reply to the accusations. And it says in Matthew that Pilate was amazed at his lack of response. He was amazed at this. Who can stand before me? The Roman governor, the one with all authority here. Because everyone else who comes in, in, in that situation is going to be groveling at their feet, begging for their lives. Would you please have mercy on me? Please have mercy on me. And Jesus just stands there. And Pilate is amazed. Who is this man? And then, you know the, the, the story for the most part here. Jesus says uh, to the people, because he, he can't find anything wrong with Jesus, so he says to the people, you know I can give you one prisoner. I'll either give you Jesus or I'll give you Barabbas, this killer. And the people say, give us Barabbas, give, give us Barabbas, so that Jesus would be crucified. And Pilate's just totally confused with the situation. He says, okay, here's Barabbas. And he takes Jesus, and Jesus is flogged and beaten and whipped. And he's bloodied. If you've seen The Passion of the Christ, this is where his body gets transformed brutally. And a crown of thorns gets pushed on his head and digs into the flesh of his, surround his skull. The blood is dripping down his face. And then he comes before Pilate once again. Chapter 19. Verse 5. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, Here's the man. Now, the, the crown of thorns and the purple robe, that was a mockery of the authority of Jesus, saying, Oh, you're the king? You're the one in charge? People say, You're the one in charge? You're not denouncing? You're the king of the Jews? Well, we'll make you look like a king. It was a complete mockery of his authority. As soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, crucify, crucify. But Pilate answered, you take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. The Jews insisted we have a law and according to that law, he must die because he claimed to be the son of God. More power struggles here. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid and he went back inside the palace. Where do you come from? He asked Jesus. But Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me? Pilate said, don't you realize I have the power either to free you or to crucify you? Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it were not given you from above. Here Pilate is saying, do you know who I am? Do you know that I'm in charge? And Jesus is saying, I understand who you think you are. But you're not in charge here. Now, we all know what happens to Jesus. He's crucified. He dies. He rises, rises again on the third day. That is the crux 
of the whole shebang story. But we're less familiar with what happens to Pilate because the story is not followed in the Bible anymore. And, but we read in, in, in other sources that about a couple of years after this event here, Pilate has an interaction with uh, Samaritans from the north and in, in his area, and he treats them poorly, and he brutally mur murders some of these Samaritans, and this is not the way the Roman government wanted him to handle this situation, so he got in trouble. So this Caesar that he had been protecting and sending taxes to and bowing down to, this Caesar wanted to try him for murder. So as Pilate was on his way to Rome for that trial, the Caesar actually died while he was en route, while Pilate was en route to Rome. So when he got there, no one knew what to do with him because the whole story had kind of been some time and the, the Caesar was gone and they were having to take care of other things. They didn't really know what to do with him, so they ended up exiling him to a, a far-off part of the Roman Empire, to uh, what, is, what is currently France. Sends him up there. And not, not long after that, the story goes that he takes his life. He kills himself. Here's this, Mr. I'm in charge, do you know who I am? Now, just a few years later, takes his own life. Who's really in charge? Now, what I'm not saying this morning is that being in charge is a bad thing. Absolutely not. I mean, we are all in charge of something. We're all responsible for something, that, that authority and, um, and, and respect and leadership are are significant parts of, of the way we do life and the way God has called us to be a part of His story. Absolutely. When I was first here, uh, almost five years ago now, when I first got here and I assembled with the staff and I asked everyone to draw up an org chart for their areas just so I can understand who, who the leaders are and who's responsible for what and just so I can get a sense of the names and what's happening. And, and there was this one person on staff who really struggled with the org chart idea and, uh, and said to me, I can't, I can't do an org chart. And I said, okay, well, you just do what you think to help me understand what's going on. And so this person drew bubbles and said, instead of an org chart, we're bubbles floating around, bumping into each other at times. And I thought, well, that's a really pretty picture, but that's what you call anarchy. I mean, this is just, this is just we can't just draw bubbles. It's because authority and, and, and who's in charge and how, that stuff that, that's not wrong. I mean, I love, I have always loved the U.S. military. I was, I've always been fascinated. I love movies about the military. I, uh, my favorite movie is A Few Good Men. And yes, sir, unit core, God, country, and those kinds of things, and how the, the line of respect all works out, and how, how sometimes you're frustrated that someone else is in charge of you, even though you're more competent than this person. How does that stuff all work out? I'm fascinated by how the American military system works. I, I lived in Fairfax, Virginia, just outside of Washington, D.C. for some time, and one of my best friends was a guy named Jim who was a, a jet pilot in the Navy. He was a graduate of the Naval Academy and, uh, in Annapolis, and at one point he took me to a football game, the football game in Annapolis between the Army and the Navy. I got to go to the football game, and during halftime, the Marine Corps silent drill uh, platoon did their performance in the middle of the thing, and I had seen them on TV and the whole thing. You know, the, the whole thing. Awesome. Have you seen this? 
24 guys who are all the same. I mean, it's just, it's just an amazing thing to watch. It's called, it must be called the silent drill uh, platoon because during the whole thing, everyone is quiet when the whole thing is done. Everyone is quiet. I'm sitting next to Jim. He leans over to me after the whole thing's done. He said, that's why we win wars. <laughs> that was a memorable little moment right there. The, I, the concept of, of authority and, and responsibility and who is in charge, that, that's not bad. I'm not saying that that stuff is bad. We are all in charge of something. In fact, we are held accountable in terms of how we handle the responsibilities that God has given us and, and the people that God has put us in charge of, whether it's in our families or at work. But in many of our lives, we are not as much in charge of life as we would like to be or as we think we are or as we want to be. I'm reminded of this on a regular basis when I, with my family, use the phrase, put your shoes on and get in the van. Because here I am the, I am the colonel of my home and I have said, troops, put your shoes on, get in the van. Daddy, what, what day is it today? I get it. Good question. We'll talk about that after you put your shoes on and get in the van. Daddy, Daddy, look what I can do with my arm. Look, look, look at this. Put your shoes on. Get in the van. Daddy, what's, what's louder, a frog or a cricket? We're, ta- we're trying to figure this out. Which one? Put your shoes on. Get in the van. Daddy, are you mad at me? Put your shoes on and get in the van. I'm reminded on a regular basis that I am not in charge of as much as I would like to be in charge of. That there are so many areas of life where we would like to have authority, where we would like to be in charge of it, and we're not. We are not in charge of someone else's salvation. We're not in charge of that. We, we learn this from Martin Luther. As, as this, this, this young girl was saying, I have this remission of sins right here in front of me. I'm okay because the authority in the church has told me I am. No human being has the, has the authority to forgive the sins before God. We're not in charge of someone else's salvation. You're not in charge of your spouse's salvation. You're not in charge of your kid's salvation. You're not held responsible for their final choice. We're also not in charge of morality, of what is right and what is wrong. It's the way the King of England said, I'm going to redefine morality here. We don't get to decide what is truth based on our circumstances, our relationships, our preferences. We're not in charge of that. We're not in charge of people's responses to us. But if we offer forgiveness and someone just takes it and throws it on the ground and squishes it, we're not in charge of how someone responds to our love, to our service, to our prayers, to the ways that we treat other people. We're not responsible for their respond, for, for how they respond to that. 
We're not responsible for the ultimate outcomes. We're responsible for our efforts towards something. The ultimate outcome, that, that we're not responsible for that. We're not responsible for, for the attitudes of people around us. Um, those of you who are in uh, management, uh, one of the things that I, I learned a number of years back is that I'm not responsible for someone's attitude, but, but I'm, I'm, I'm responsible for their behavior. So I can't lead them towards a certain attitude to say, you need to be more respectful. You need to be more pleasurable, more uh, uh, enjoyable around the office. I, I'm not in charge of someone's attitude, but I can be in charge of someone's behavior. Here's what we're going to do. I can't say be more respectful, but I can say you need to show up on time. There are certain things that I'm not in charge of. So when we wrestle with what, what am I in charge of, what am I not in charge of, it's important for us to remember Martin Luther's words. It, it's Christ alone. It's Christ alone who has all the authority. Jesus himself says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. He's the one in, in these vast areas that where we don't have control over, charge over. He's the one who is the authority. That's why we take it to him. That's why we take it to him. So as, as I close here the, this morning, just here, here's the point, is that when we stand before Jesus, we are wise to remember who is in charge. That there was a part of church history where the church, the authority in the church, had the audacity to stand before Christ and say, do you know who I am? When we stand before Jesus, He is not going to grab us by the shoulders and shake us up and say, do you understand what's going on here? You knucklehead. Do you understand that you need grace? Do you understand that? And it's free? It's free? Do you understand that? And that I have the authority and I hold the keys? Do you understand that? He's not going to do that. He is going to stand like he did with Pilate, with blood dripping down his face, and let us decide who's in charge. Do we want to hold on to that? Or do we want to surrender that to the one who has all authority? Do we want to acknowledge that he is the one who's in charge? When we stand before Jesus with our doubts and our questions, just like the Alpha video, how could God allow this to happen? God, how did you let this happen? When we stand before Christ with our pain, and our insecurities, and our unanswered prayers, and our unmet expectations, and our broken hearts, will we have the arrogance to say, Jesus, do you know who I am? Do you realize that if you just answered these prayers, then I would be interested in you? Then I would have a deep intimacy with you? Don't you understand that, Jesus? Or when we stand before him with the blood pouring down his face, are we wise enough to acknowledge he is in charge?
Let's pray. God, there's a desire in, in, in all of us to, uh, to be in charge. We have, a, we have a phrase for it. We, we say that people are control freaks. I know there's some control freaks in this room, God. This is, and there's a part of that that's, that's natural and good and the desire to lead and to influence. Those are beautiful things. But so often we go outside of what you're asking us to be in charge of. And when we do that, God, we ask for your forgiveness. God, I ask for forgiveness for all of us here in this room who, who want to take charge of things that are beyond us. Whether it's relationships or our finances or our future, our physical health. God, I pray for control freaks who are, who are bound up in their desire to be in charge. God, I pray that as they stand before you that they would be able to surrender that to your authority. God, I pray for, for the worriers in the room who because they're not in charge, then they just sit back and they just worry about, about everything going on around them. Worry, overly worry about their kids or their future or their finances. That you're not asking us to, to worry, that worry doesn't help anything at all, but for us to just stand before you and say, God, I trust you. I trust in your authority that you are in charge. This morning, we say, you are in charge, God. In Jesus' name, amen.